Well, do you remember when you became a Christian? When you came to a true saving faith in Christ, it should have come with a changed life, complete with changed desires, changed direction, and changed ethics. Upon salvation, when God transforms you, he resets your moral compass. And though you're still a sinner, you now see sin for what it is, and you come to detest it like God does. And typically, new believers have a very black and white view of sin. Knowing right from wrong is simple. All sin is wrong. But as time goes on, you learn that things are not necessarily always so black and white. It's not long before you see other Christians doing things you thought were wrong, and it bothers you. You see that Christian you thought was super godly, and they're drinking. And you think, wait a second, I thought Christians aren't supposed to drink. Or maybe you see someone from church at the county fair, and they're smoking cigarettes like a chimney, and you think, Christians aren't supposed to smoke, right? Or maybe you overhear some Christian friends of yours recall the great time they had last night dancing at the club and so forth, and you think, that, that can't be, isn't that worldly? And you start to get confused, even stumbled, because you respected these people, but it feels like they're betraying the faith, because when you talk to them about it, they say they're not doing anything wrong, and they challenge you to find a single verse of the Bible that says Christians can't drink or smoke or dance, and, and you look, but you, you can't find any specific verse still you're convinced these things are wrong so who is right who is wrong and don't think it's so simple as these three common issues of drinking or smoking or dancing but the list of activities is endless which some christians think no problem with others think are completely wrong examples might include watching tv watching r-rated movies watching mma celebrating halloween getting a christmas tree Riding motorcycles, tattoos, body piercing, certain hairstyles, certain clothing styles, modesty, wearing makeup, cosmetic surgery, birth control, vaccinations, sending kids to public school, homeschooling, shopping on Sundays, hunting, dating, courting, going to bars, going to nightclubs, gambling, playing cards, listening to secular music. The list goes on and on. Such issues are generally referred to as Christian liberties. It doesn't take long as a new believer before you realize they exist and things are not always so black and white. You find that there is this vast gray area, seemingly in the middle, filled with mixed views on right and wrong ways to live. And what makes this gray area gray is the fact that for all these issues, there's there's not specifically discussed in Scripture. Meaning you won't find an explicit Bible verse on them that will settle the debate. Some aspects, for example, of modern culture simply were not addressed in the Bible. So, for example, there's no command that says, thou shalt not vaccinate your children, or thou shalt not play slot machines. They didn't know what a slot machine was. Why do Christians disagree on such issues, though? And they do. Well, the reasons vary. Some simply misinterpret the scriptures. Some confuse tradition with scripture. A big factor is church upbringing or family upbringing. If you're raised in a church or family, for example, where body piercings were evil, you're more, more likely to believe that they're wrong when you grow up. Same goes with personal experience. If you're raised in a family and maybe one of your parents was an alcoholic, you're more likely to think all drinking is bad when you grow up. Needless to say, there are plenty of reasons for the divergence in Christian opinion. The outcome of such divergence is typically separation. At the end of the day, most people believe they're right, Everyone else is wrong, 
Their ways must be God's ways. Their preferences must be God's preferences. Everyone else is just a sinner, and it's much easier to separate from such people than to try and live with them. And so the body of Christ is splintered over issues not even mentioned oftentimes in the Bible. Another outcome of the varied views of these Christian liberties is the stumbling of weaker believers. When a younger believer sees another believer do something they think is wrong, whether it is or isn't, it can stumble their faith. It can cause them to doubt the faith, thinking all Christians are a bunch of hypocrites, and maybe even fall away. That's something, though, the Lord takes extremely seriously. We must take care not to offend or stumble others, especially the weaker brethren. But how far do you take that? Because it seems like just about every action these days can offend someone else. So does God want want us walking continually on eggshells, always wondering and worrying about whom we might offend, worrying about how our actions might be perceived? What is the balance between these Christian liberties and not causing others to stumble? Have you ever had that question before or ever worried or wondered about these issues? I bet you have, and the question comes up often enough. In fact, I was asked this question just a few weeks ago for our Q&A sermons. And if you haven't guessed it, that's where we're headed with this this morning. In case you're new here or relatively new, we just finished a long study on Sunday mornings through the Gospel of Mark. But it was good. Pretty soon we'll be moving on to study another book of the Bible. But with the time in between, we've been doing some Q&A sermons, where I answer up here from the pulpit all the questions you submitted many weeks ago. And we're mostly done with that. But I mentioned last week, every now and then I'll get one or two questions that represent really important issues or really frequent issues. And so I'll turn a couple of the questions into their own full-length sermon. And that's what we got going on today. A few weeks ago, somebody asked a relatively simple question. Simply this, what is the balance between our Christian liberties and not causing other Christians to stumble? Good question. It's a simple question, but that does not mean there's a simple answer. In fact, this whole concept of Christian liberties is to many Christians one of the most confusing and challenging subjects to get a handle of because it it requires so much biblical knowledge or so much to take into consideration. You have to have a really deep and proper understanding of salvation and the law, what the Bible says about God's law and grace. It's a lot to consider. Needless to say, it is a good question, and I think it will profit us all to answer it together. And furthermore, the more I thought about this question, it also dawned on me, in my five years at this church, I've never actually taught on Christian liberties. Not by design, it just hasn't come up in the books we've been studying. And so, since it's such a challenging issue for many believers, I figured, you know, it's probably time to devote some extra time to this subject. Some of you out there, you may have this all figured out. You already got it down, and that's great. Good for you. I hope this will be affirming for you, and that, that's a great thing. But I bet for the rest of you, you, you probably still have a good number of questions that maybe you don't think about every day, but they're still there. They've always been there. Questions like, what are Christian liberties? What does that really mean? What does that include? How do we determine what we can and cannot do as Christians? What does it mean to be free in Christ? What does it mean to be free from the law? What limits are there on our freedom? What does it really mean to cause a fellow believer to stumble, and how should that affect the way we live? And then the original question, what's the balance between exercising our liberties in Christ and not causing others to stumble in the faith? And there's more questions. 
And so today we will attempt to answer these questions and, and more all surrounding this concept of Christian liberties. This is really just a question of how we are to live as followers of Christ in a world that does not follow Christ. We're confronted with this question each and every day, whether you think about it or not. And so the church could always use some more instruction from God's word on how to navigate these waters of Christian liberties. So let's see if we can provide some guidance this morning. We'll begin, kind of like we did last time, with definition. So number one, if if you want to follow along, the definition of Christian liberty. Just just define it, the definition of Christian liberty. How, How are we defining these Christian liberties? Liberty in general refers to the state of being free. You're free to act and choose as you see fit. So you might think Christian liberties means Christians can do whatever they want. That is obviously not the case, though. Certain things are clearly forbidden in Scripture, namely sin. So we're not talking about sin here. The Bible comes with an absolute moral standard of right and wrong. And while Christians may still fall into sin, it's still wrong. So that's just not what we're talking about, Christian liberties. Anything the Bible clearly defines as sin, you do not have the liberty to do in God's eyes, so to speak. Instead, we're referring to the freedom to do all those things which are not addressed by the Bible's absolute moral standard. There are many practices, some ancient, some modern, that are simply not referenced in Scripture. Nothing in God's word explicitly commands them or forbids them. Many such, such actions, therefore, can be described as morally neutral or indifferent. In other words, these actions do not relate to God's moral will directly. A perfect example of this that fits both the ancient world and the modern world is eating meat. The decision to eat meat or to abstain is morally neutral to God. Therefore, you are free to do as you please. That's what we're talking about when we mean, when we speak of Christian liberties. Christian liberty refers to these kinds of activities. And regarding these activities, Christians are free to do as they see fit. Now, that's not the end of the discussion. That is only the beginning of the discussion. Because just because you are free to do something, that doesn't mean you should. There's a lot more to consider when trying to decide whether you should do something or not. The mere fact that something is not mentioned in the Bible doesn't mean you could or should do it. So don't get ahead of yourselves. This is just a simple definition. We're talking about things not directly referenced in Scripture. But let's keep going. Number two, the foundation of Christian liberty. The foundation of Christian liberty. Now first, I should mention there's no shortage of Bible verses that speak of our freedom in Christ. We are free. John 8:32, Jesus said, you will know the truth. The truth will make you free. And then he says in verse 36, if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. We also have Galatians 1, or chapter 5, verse 1 rather. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Verse 13, you were called to freedom. So we're we're free in Christ. I bet you've heard that before. What does that really mean, though? What what is the nature of our freedom in Christ and the source of our freedom? Well, it all centers on the atoning death of Christ, which helps explain from what we've been set free. So turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. We're going to be mostly in Romans in this discussion. So go to Romans chapter 6. 
Okay, so we're free in Christ. What does that mean? Well, first, we need to establish what we've been freed from and how. And for that, just ask the question, to what were we formerly enslaved? What did we used to be enslaved to, according to the Bible? One answer in Scripture is Satan. The Bible teaches that before salvation, we were all enslaved to, sal- to Satan. This is in 2 Timothy, just listen along, chapter 2, verse 25, where Paul prays for unbelievers, saying, If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So those who are lost, it's saying, they're not free to do their own will. They are bound, held captive to do Satan's will. That's what it just said, 2 Timothy 2, 25-26. Of course, though, we know our, our previous bondage to Satan was merely a corollary to our bondage to sin and death. That was our primary enslavement to sin and to death. John 8:34, Jesus said, "Everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin." Jesus, though, has set us free from sin and death. We know that. How? Well, through his death on the cross. No, this is the gospel. It's what Romans is all about. The whole book of Romans. It's what this is about. In chapters one through three of Romans, Paul builds the conviction of sin, that all are guilty. All have sinned, all have fallen short. There are none righteous, not even one, none who does good, none who seeks after God. All are in need of redemption, which they cannot attain on their own. But the good news, after that bad news, is especially highlighted in Romans chapters 4 through 6, the next section, where he explains the work of Christ. By God's grace, through our faith in Christ, we can be justified or made right with God apart from works, the works of the law. And that's a big deal to understand that. This is the basis of salvation. And it comes as a consequence of Christ's atoning death on the cross where he paid for all of our sins, took all of our debt away, enabled us to receive God's righteousness and then reconciled us to God. That's the heart of the gospel, that we can be completely redeemed in Christ. And and if you're here, and by the way, and you haven't understood or embraced that good news, I would urge you to, like Rod said, make today the day of your salvation to accept Christ and that good news. For those who have, though, one of the results of that salvation is to be set free. And Paul explains this mostly in Romans chapter 6. So if you're there, look at verse 6. He says, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. And in Christ, we have died to sin, and we've been raised to new life. We too are freed from sin in Christ. This doesn't mean we'll never sin again, but it means sin is no longer our master. Look down at verse 12. He says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. He says, verse 14, for sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. We are free from sin. It's no longer our master, meaning we're no longer bound to sin. Now, whenever people hear that phrase, we're not under law, 
they wonder, you know, does that mean we're free to sin? Like we can, we can, we can sin now, do what we want. Well, no, it's, it's, he says freedom from sin, not freedom to sin. We have freedom from sin, not freedom to sin. Hence, verse 15. He says, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or obedience resulting in righteousness. But, verse 17, thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. We are freed from sin. But the good news is we are still slaves, slaves to righteousness, to God. And that's a good thing. We have a new master now, the Lord. And he's a good master. We are happily bound to him. Because unlike our old master, which only gives us eternal death, the Lord, bringing us to himself and binding us to himself, gives us eternal life. You want to be bound under God. And so look at verse 22 and 23, the, the familiar verses. He says, but now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive the benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I know for some of you this might just be a refresher, but we have to cover this because this is the foundation of our Christian liberty, our freedom in Christ. We're talking about freedom from sin, from death itself. We've been set free, not to sin, but finally from sin. We're no longer bound to sin. We're free from its penalty and its demands. We've been set free from bondage to sin's ways and finally enabled to truly love God and follow him from the heart. And that's freedom indeed. But questions remain, how far does this freedom go? Not talking about sin, but, you know, outside of sin, how far do we take this freedom? So let's move on and talk about number three, the extent of Christian liberty. The extent of Christian liberty. So remember back in Romans 6 where Paul said, we're not under law, but we're under grace. Remember that? We need to talk about that. That's because when you're studying what the Bible says about Christian liberties, you really have to understand law and grace. That's the freedom we're mostly talking about when we're talking about Christian liberties, freedom from the law. So you've got to get that really straight. Christ has set us free from sin and from Satan and from death. Yes, and that's foundational and amazing. But he's also set us free from bondage to the law. And that's really what we're trying to get at here when we're going to get into Christian liberties. So let us talk about what this means, freedom from the law. Now, I should mention, when I say law, I'm talking law with a capital L. And that means law of Moses, the old covenant, in case you didn't know. To give you some perspective, before Christ, to be among the people of God meant to be under the old covenant. The old covenant. This covenant is primarily expressed in the law of Moses, the Torah. That's just the first five books of the Bible. This law partly represented the ethics of God, a standard of right and wrong. And so you see commands like, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal. 
representing God's ethics. The law also was intended, though, to set Israel apart as holy and unique among the nations. And so there were many ceremonial laws, like ritual washing, animal sacrifices, dietary restrictions. This law governed how God's people were to live under that old covenant. But you have to understand, the law did not save. Salvation never came ever through keeping the commandments. This was never meant to be a covenant of salvation. The problem is that the Jews eventually took it that way. They came to confuse salvation with simply being in the old covenant. So if you're a Jew, you keep the commands. You've been circumcised, which is the sign of entering the old covenant. Well, you must be saved. But that's not true. The law itself did nothing to save the people from their sins, to pay for their sins. It didn't do anything for that. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says that the law has a ministry of death and condemnation. He says the letter kills. That's pretty harsh. You may be like wondering, how, how can you say that? How so? How does the law kill? Well, the law represents an impossible standard. You can't keep it all, not even close. And any violation simply brings you under God's judgment. So in the end, the law only brings greater condemnation. That's because we're all fallen sinners. We're enslaved to sin. We can't help but break God's commands. Now turn to Romans 7, just the next chapter. This is where he starts to get into this issue of the law and how we relate to the law. And so he says in chapter 7, verse 5, For while we were in the flesh, that is before salvation, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. That's how it goes for anyone who thinks they can earn God's favor by keeping his commands. You can't do it. You're enslaved to sin. You will only ever violate. And you can't help yourself. You're in bondage per your old fallen nature. You're just going to keep breaking the commands. The only result then is more condemnation, more judgment, and death. Again, the Jews got this wrong. They thought they could be saved by trying to keep these commands. But not only is that futile, it also leads to a miserable life. Just imagine trying to live your life by strictly abiding to hundreds of rules and regulations. And then they added their own. Remember, so now that you have thousands of rules to follow. You mistakenly think you have to earn righteousness before God by keeping these rules. And you try your best. You really do. But you keep falling short, so you are constantly plagued with guilt. You're also constantly plagued with fear because you never really believe God accepts you. You keep breaking his laws. How could he accept you? And you also have to live in paranoia. Did I, did I take too many steps on the Sabbath today? Did I wash properly before this meal? Did I, did I give my full tithe? It's a miserable way to live. It was never God's intention. What was God's intention with the Mosaic law then? Well, first, the law was given to reveal man's utter sinfulness and his total inability to save himself. And so Paul said back in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law brings about a true knowledge of the sin problem. And this, in turn, was meant to show God's people their desperate need for what? 
for a savior. For a savior because they could not solve the sin problem on their own. Therefore, in a sense, you could say the law was like a tutor. It was meant to carry us along and lead us to the solution to Christ, the sin solution. And that's actually one of the main functions of the law, to point to Christ. Stay in Romans. I'm going to read for you Galatians 3. Galatians, it's like many Romans. There's a lot of overlap with this law and grace teaching. So it's not surprising to find him say in Galatians 3.24, Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. You see, this is another aspect of the old covenant to point to Christ. The law was meant to showcase the need for a new heart, for redemption, for regeneration, which would come in the Messiah, through the Messiah. The law, therefore, was a shadow of things to come, a tutor to lead us to Christ. But guess what? Has Christ come? Yes. So we don't need the tutor anymore. And that's why he says we're not under the law. Romans 6.14, what we just read, you are not under law, but under grace. Romans chapter 7, look at verse 6. He says, but now we have been released from the law. Romans 10.4, he says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In Galatians 5.18, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So it's pretty clear. I hope you understand the law of Moses is over for us now in Christ. But wait, you may think, hey, not so fast. What about those verses that say the law will never be abolished, right? Well, that's true. But what did Jesus himself say? Matthew 5, 17. Do not think I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And that's what he did. He fulfilled the purpose of the law, which was himself. The law pointed to him. And as Jesus met the law's demands on our behalf and granted us his perfect righteousness, so he freed us from the demands and the penalty of the law. And accordingly, in fulfilling the intent of the old covenant, Jesus brought about a new covenant, a new covenant, which replaced the old as it fulfilled it. So now, what does it mean to be among God's people? It does not mean to be under the old covenant. It means to be under this new covenant. We are no longer enslaved to the letter of the law, which kills. But with the new covenant came God's spirit, which brings not death, but life. It's like Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. God made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. This is the amazing thing about this new covenant where God actually gives life through it. The old covenant did not. It was not a covenant of salvation. But the new covenant is where God imparts new life to those of faith. Before, our problem wasn't with the law. Our problem was with us, our sin nature, our sinful hearts. And the law merely aroused our sin and we violated it. But now in Christ, through this new covenant, God actually changes our nature. By his grace, through Christ's work, we're forgiven of all our sins, we're made righteous, 
and we're transformed from the inside out where he gives us a new heart and his spirit to dwell within us. And that's, that's everything we need to live rightly before him, right? What we don't need for that anymore is the law. And so that's why we say we are saved by grace apart from the works of the law. Or like he said in Romans 6, we are no longer under law, but under grace. We are finally made right with God purely by his grace and his mercy. Now listen, I I know I'm really laboring this point, but I hope and trust you're tracking with me. I'm giving you a pretty heavy dose of teaching on law and grace, but you have to get law and grace squared away. Otherwise, you have no hope of really understanding Christian liberties and getting that all straight. You've got to understand our relationship between two and between law and grace. And so far, the point is simple. Like Paul said, we are not under law, but grace. This means we don't relate to God anymore through the law, but through grace. The Christian life is not about trying to keep a bunch of rules and laws. Rather, we already please God in Christ. God, by his grace, he's already made us fully acceptable to him through the work of his son. And that reality is absolutely fundamental to our freedom. Talk about freedom. You already are made perfect in Christ and fully please God through him. Not because of you, but in and through him. That's an amazing reality. But some people are still a little disturbed. They say, okay, well, that, okay that's fine, but you know, all this talk of not being under the law, does that mean we're now lawless? I mean, if we're leaving the law behind... How, how do we know right from wrong? We just do what we want now because we're not under the law? How do we know how God wants us to live? Under the old covenant, that was a very simple question. Just keep the commands. Here's 613 commandments. Do them. That's how many commandments are in the Old Testament. But how are we supposed to live under this new covenant which has no list of rules and regulations? Some have criticized all this teaching on grace and freedom from the law, saying it just leads to lawlessness, which is sin. But not so fast. Because here's the next big point. Christ has set us free from the law of Moses, but that doesn't mean we're set free from all law. Don't confuse freedom from the law of Moses with lawlessness. We are free from sin, not free to sin. And rather, we are still bound to the law of God written on the heart or more specifically as the New Testament calls it the law of Christ we are now bound to the law of Christ with the new covenant came a new law that was always God's plan listen to his Old Testament promise looking forward to the new covenant where he says in Jeremiah 31 33 I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God, and they will be my people. So understand, we find that when Christ came, God's law didn't go away. It went inside us, inside our hearts. And God's law no longer finds expression in the law of Moses, but in the law of Christ. Quote, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3. That's another big chapter on law and grace. 2 Corinthians 3, 3. 
So, law of Christ. We're still bound. What, what is that, though? What is the law of Christ? It is God's ultimate standard of righteousness, but, hey, it's really simple. There's just two commands. You probably know them. Christ gave them to you. Number one, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Number two, to love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. That, after all, though, is everything. Doesn't that fulfill the entire law, Christ said, right? And it is in this new law, the law of Christ, that we find all the direction we need for how to live before God now. Just keep the two commands. But keep in mind, though, that being said, even though we're still under a law, the law of Christ, that's true, but we also relate to that law differently now. We have a different relation to that law, a different motivation for that law as well. Before, under the Old Covenant, the Jews, they sought to keep the law out of fear. They were motivated by fear. They, were, they had fear of judgment, and the penalties were high. But in Christ, we've already been completely forgiven. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, verse 1. Just the next few verses. So in Christ, if you're truly in Christ by faith, we have zero fear of judgment. Even when we fall short and violate, God's grace has already covered our sin. This loss of fear, though, doesn't lead to lawlessness because now in Christ we have a new motivation to keep his law and to live before him. And our new motivation is love. It is love. Now we seek to obey the law of God written on our hearts, not because we have to, not because we're afraid, not out of obligation, but because we want to. It is in our new nature to want to. He's given us a new heart that wants to. We love God. We love his ways. If you're in him, you will. And so you're going to obey because you want to. And that's another outcome of the new birth. You be the judge. Pretend you're a parent. You have two kids. You tell both your kids, go clean your room. They have separate rooms. They run off. They clean their rooms. They both do an excellent job. They both obey. But one of them obeys you only because he's afraid that if he doesn't, you will punish him. So his obedience has no joy, only fear. The second, though, obeys you because he loves you as his parent, and he wants to please you, and he wants to do what is right. And so his obedience comes with joy. Which kid do you want? <laughs> you know, which is more pleasing? Like you can choose, right? You see, though, this is a higher law. Christ's way is a higher way. It's a greater law, isn't it? It's called the law of love. Or as James puts it in James 1.25, he calls it the law of liberty. Think about that. Isn't that an oxymoron? The law of liberty. This is freedom. I have to tell you, though, there are many Christians who don't get this. They don't understand their, their fundamental freedom in Christ. Although they may be truly saved, they might be weak or young in the faith, and they still live as if they're under the burden of God's law. So the Christian life is to them a burden. They're still gripped by this constant fear and guilt. They don't, they don't need to be, but they just don't really know better, and they just have a shallow understanding of God's grace. So they still feel this burden. Do you know Christians like this? You probably do. I do. I'll give you a general caricature. You have people, and they, for example, they faithfully attend church because they know they should. That's what good Christians do. And, you know, they want to. But when they miss, 
They feel like they need to explain themselves. Also, they, they give money, they give an offering to the church, and they want to. Part of them wants to give. But, you know, there's that one time they had some unexpected medical expenses. So they had to give less to church, and they felt really guilty. And then there's sin. They fully know that Christians still sin, but that doesn't change the, the fact that just about every time they commit that same old familiar sin, they become afraid. And part of them still wonders, does God accept me? I mean, how could he? I keep doing that sin over and over again. And I, I keep falling short. And when they do sin, they do feel bad. They do repent, which is good. But they also mix in a little bit of penance. After they fall, they barter with God. They tell him, Lord, okay, I'm really sorry. I know I messed up. I'm going to do better. I'm going to read my Bible an hour a week now or hour a day. And I'm going to pray every day too. It's as if they feel the need to earn back God's favor. I bet this resonates with some of you, maybe a few of you squirming. But it's merely a reflection of, of law versus grace. We're not under the law, but grace, which means fundamentally we don't relate to God. We don't gain God's favor through law keeping of any sort. That's not how you please God. How do you please God? There's only one way, by his free grace through Christ. And so therefore, how do we relate to God? By faith. That's it. It's just by faith. And we rightly relate to him. We are accepted merely by faith in Christ. And in that faith, you are transformed and then renewed to seek God from the inside out. That's what God wants. That's what he wants. Love and obedience from the inner man. Now, all that being said, I think we can finally circle back around to our discussion of Christian liberties, which is where we were trying to go today. Now, I'll tell you, when it comes to now Christian liberties, all these various activities, these gray areas, I'll tell you what most people want. They want a list. Just give me the list. Just tell me what I can and can't do. That's the temptation of legalism. Okay, I'm a Christian. I know sin is wrong, so we're not talking about sin. But everything else, all those other issues, just just give me the list. Tell me what I can't do, what I can do, and I'll obey. Like a good Christian. But it doesn't work that way. If you've been waiting for me to give you Berean Bible Church's official list of things you can and can't do on Saturday night, you're going to keep waiting. There's no list. But then what's the answer? How do we sort through all these issues without a list of rules and regulations to follow? Well, I'll give you the answer that Scripture gives, which is based on everything we just said, which is why we had to do all that. But the answer now, it's pretty simple. Just walk by the Spirit. That's it. Just live by the Spirit, which comes with the new covenant. God has already given you all you need to live under him in this new covenant. Through the Spirit, he's caused to dwell in you, so just walk by the Spirit. You're good to go. I'll say more, but look at Romans 8 now. The next chapter, I told you we're in Romans. Look at chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. He says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, And as an offering for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us 
who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This is not different from what Paul says over in many Romans, or Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18, where he says, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And finally, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, again, that same chapter, verse 17, he says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Did you get that? Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Where's the Spirit now? He's in us. So what do we have? Liberty. See, the Christian life is meant to be a free life, a life free from fear. Of course, we've said many, many times, not talking about freedom to sin. Okay, you get that. But it's freedom to live life to the fullest as God intended to his glory. And it's really simple. Just walk by the spirit that he's given to you and then do as you please. Because the spirit will never lead you into sin. If you are truly walking by the Spirit, now that's a big if, but if you're really walking by the Spirit, do what you please, and you will be pleasing to God. And you will be free indeed. That's liberty. It sounds simple, right? It's meant to be simple. But this still isn't the end, because a lot of Christians, I find, they still struggle now with this new concept. If, you, if you're with me, you're tracking, they still struggle with, okay, but, but how do I do that? Walk by the Spirit. What does that even mean? Many confuse this concept with a purely subjective personal experience where any thought that pops into their mind, they think, well, it must be the Spirit, right? The Spirit's in me. And so their guidance is any whim of emotion or feeling, it must be the Spirit. That is not it. Others have used this freedom in the Spirit as a cloak for their lusts. You might imagine someone saying, hey, I, the Spirit told me it's okay for me to sleep with my girlfriend. Uh, no, I don't think so. The Spirit didn't tell you that. Galatians 5.13 says, For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. We are free from sin, but we're still bound to righteousness. The question still stands, though. How do we discern, then, the Spirit's daily leading in our lives? How do we live out our freedom, especially with all these gray area issues the Bible doesn't tell us? What, what do we do? And we know, okay, the Spirit will never lead us into sin. The Spirit will never lead us into greed or lust or anger or theft. Okay, but what about drinking or smoking or dancing or watching TV or watching that movie? Is the Spirit leading me to watch that movie? How do I know? What about what clothes to wear or body piercings or tattoos? How do you figure that out? The simple answer to the whole issue is you're free in Christ. Just walk by the Spirit. Do as you please. But how do you do that? What does that look like? How does the Spirit give guidance? If you want those answers, you'll have to come back next week. <laughs> I, I really did try. I didn't mean to just like, I didn't do that on purpose because I wanted to make you feel bad or something. I really tried this week to squeeze this all into one sermon. I don't, I'm not a short-winded guy. I think you know that. And there's so much more. There really is. There's a lot more to say in this issue. Next time we'll come back, we'll answer all those now practical questions about Christian liberties 
today, the theological side. But I'll tell you what, we had to do this today. Because all the answers you want, they're found in Romans chapters 14 and 15. All the answers. And we'll get there. That's where Paul really lays out Christian liberties. But why we did this today, you can't get to Romans 14 and 15 until you first go through Romans 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 and 7 and 8. If you don't understand really well salvation, the new covenant, law versus grace, the ministry of the Spirit, that's like Romans 1 through 8. If you don't get that, you will never get Romans 14 and 15. You will miss the boat on Christian liberties and you will go off in the wrong direction. So we had to do this first. Thanks for following along. We had to lay this foundation of law versus grace. But now the foundation is laid, if you're with me, and we're ready to build the house. So next time we'll come back, I'll show you exactly what it looks like, very practically speaking, to walk by the Spirit, to to discern God's leading in all these gray area issues, how to navigate the waters of Christian liberties. I know it may be a disappointing ending for some of you, but just be back next week and you'll get what you're after. Until then, though, all that being said, don't take for granted what we covered. And really spend some time as you leave this morning to contemplate and appreciate the freedom you do have in Christ. Freedom from sin, freedom from Satan, freedom from death, freedom from bondage to the law as a means of pleasing God. It's all over. And overall, in a word, you could say we have freedom from fear. That's at the, the heart of this. That fear used to rule our lives before in sin. But Jesus come, or Jesus came rather, and he brought us into his perfect love. And what does his perfect love do? First John 4:18. Perfect love casts out fear. And that's what he did for us. This is the very heart of our freedom in Christ. We've been brought into the love of Christ by the love of God. So spend time thinking on your freedom in Christ. And let's offer up our thanksgivings to the freedom from fear that we already have and can enjoy right now. Let's pray. God and Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ in heaven, we, we do praise you and thank you this morning that we are free from fear. We were held captive to sin, to Satan, to death, to the law. We were so lost and afraid, whether we knew it or not, whether we we cast off our conscience or not, there was nothing but hopelessness and despair in our past. But thanks be to God through Christ who made us alive and gave us the Spirit, forgave us of all of our sins and, and brought us to you. Because in your love, Lord, there's, there's no fear. There's nothing for us to fear, not even our sin itself. For you have already paid the price through Christ on the cross. We give you the highest praise for this, Lord. I pray everyone here this morning can just spend some time basking in that freedom of fear and live life to the fullest under that. There's meant to be fullness of joy, and that that can exist with fear. And so may they turn to Christ. Any here, Lord, who don't know you or your son, they're still wrestling with that internal fear. There's only one way out and one way to freedom, and that's to Christ. May they turn today. In In Christ, though, there's freedom, yet also slavery. We are happily bound to him and his righteousness, for in him there's life. All these things, Lord, we reflect on, we thank you for. May we leave praising you for this freedom that you've given to us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.